0: Welcome to Map, the bi-weekly Market Access podcast provided by Mars, Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech, or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer. I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing, and health economics. Already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P and N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare, based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations, and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. The focus for today's podcast episode is this time more really getting into the details of oncology, a very important area, obviously, in the disease areas we're otherwise, let's say, discussing also, and that has also some very special kind of components, let's call it like that. Um, Oncology is a lot of times, especially in the late stages, the metastatic stages, Um, a deadly disease, sometimes with only a few months of further survival. So a very difficult also decision to make, let's say, when we're getting into discussions with payers. I mean, should we pay as a payer for a given drug? Maybe also and even if we only see, let's say, some response rate data or maybe just some two or three weeks of additional over survival. It's a very difficult and tough decision to make, for sure. But on the other hand, it's also quite clear that the requirements from the payer side are known and should potentially, for example, also followed by the industry. But what is so special about potentially oncology? I mean, as said already, I think it's a deadly disease. It's very, um, it's very emotional, obviously, for patients, for caregivers, but also for payers, ultimately. Um, Very important in the area, I have already mentioned it, is overall survival. So how long does a patient further live? But even there, it's really difficult. Think about a disease area where a patient on median lives two or let's say three weeks longer. Is that now long? And if it's long enough, how much or would you potentially be willing to pay for if you would be a payer? Is two or three months of overall survival enough to pay for A couple of thousands, maybe a couple of 10,000, maybe a couple of 100,000 euros. Good question. What if the evidence base is not even based on overall survival? What if the evidence base is used um, on progression-free survival, which is, payers say it like that, a surrogate endpoint for overall survival. On the other hand, if you, for example, take disease areas, for example, like lung cancer, where with the progression-free survival, the tumors not growing, hence you might have a better quality of life because you don't have breathing issues. Is that then a special circumstance or is it rather, as payer would always argue, a way that you should prove quality of life and then maybe linked with progression-free survival? What about safety? I think generally safety, let's say more safety concerns are rather more acceptable in an area of oncology in comparison to primary care. Just compare the different side effects for, take the chemotherapies that would never be accepted in a primary care setting. Even though there are so many different, let's say, points to consider, even if you just start thinking about the disease area, not even thinking about, let's say, how to come up with the evidence. Meaning, is an RCT possible or not, etc. I mean, there are a lot of different concerns and requirements to be done, and still you see a big number of new drugs coming up and being launched for in the oncology area so there should be something special around it and probably also payers are still thinking and speaking and deciding like that. Around those questions I'm discussing today with Ed Schoenfeld, I would say a veteran in market access and reimbursement with so much experience in it, I think he's, he's basically started in marketing and sales, then had various roles on, on the global level with Eli Lilly, with Wyeth, with Cambridge Pharma, et cetera. But he was also in consultancy, so he had also, let's say, different viewpoints also with smaller kind of companies. So I'm really looking forward to discuss with Ed Schoenfeld, and not to forget, he's the author of The Price of Global Health. It's now already available in the third edition, but I can only say it's highly recommended to read and at least have it for you whenever you have questions around market access. Okay, welcome Ed, Ed Schoenfeld, a, one of the, let's say, uh, very prominent person as well in the area of market access. I think uh, you wrote uh, not only one book but uh, also a lot of different articles around market access, so welcome
1: to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Stefan. He has one book, three editions, but only one book, yes. Yeah. That's
0: right. yeah. <laughs> it it's has a feeling of more than one book, right? Because of those <laughs> Absolutely. That, I mean, you know, if you see... What is all, let's say, changing in the world of market access and reimbursement in the system, and the healthcare systems, et cetera? It could feel like
1: three different books, right? It it has, and it really has evolved so much. It's changed so much. I have a lot of detail as well, but you're right. It's a continuously evolving environment. It doesn't get any easier ever, but it's, uh, (laughs) it's certainly an interesting area. It keeps us on our toes, yes.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, today we want to maybe pick out a very special area, not only in market access, but generally, let's say, in, in, in medicine. We're talking about oncology and, in, in, let's say, in the context of market access. Could you maybe just introduce a bit what might or might not be so special about oncology, especially maybe when comparing against other disease areas?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, when I worked in the industry, particularly a number of years ago, Whenever you would talk to somebody on the oncology team, they would say, yeah, but oncology is different, right? It was always the exception. No, no, none of the normal rules applied. It kind of implied that you can get away with everything. Um, and maybe it was special because payers were very hesitant, I would say, to uh, manage it tightly because it's a, it's a very demanding area. Patients are obviously suffering. There's a high unmet need. Having said that, I think it's changed. Um, it, it, they still hesitant, an in the U.S. to manage it very tightly, but there's been a large budget impact, lots of expensive combination drugs, IO drugs. And uh, so they feel they need to at least make sure that the products are being used where the evidence is, is right, even in the U.S., um, and, of course, outside the U.S., uh, cost is playing a major role like with any other, uh, other area. So I don't think it's as different anymore as it used to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one. I, I, I agree. I think when I started in the area, I think it was always said oncology is different. Oncology yeah. is, is not something where we can really take the rules and the, let's say, the methods for, let's say, or let's say to do a reimbursement decision, which is basically evidence-based medicine slash health economics, for example, cost per quality, right? Um, yeah. One of the yeah. quite prominent, uh, let's say, endpoints in oncology is or was progression-free survival. Um, w- w- what is the trend there in terms of payers
1: and the acceptance? Yeah. That? yeah, that's an interesting one because, you know, when you're looking at payers, how they are assessing it, Yeah, you know, I'd like to start with the physicians when you're talking about mm-hmm. this, right? Because physicians like to see, a patient responding, a partial complete response rate, ideally, uh, progression free survival plays a big role. Of course, they want to see overall survival ultimately, but the physician generally, when they see a patient respond, they have the confidence and the belief that probably a longer term outcomes will, will will follow. And particularly when the quality of life of the patient, meanwhile, is good, that's great. Patients are much more skeptical on that, right? I mean, they do want to see a, a very consistent picture. So For example, only overall survival without any tumor response rate, they would like to really understand better whether that's real, so to speak. But they tend to say, you know, if you don't really extend life, and particularly if the treatment comes with side effect, what's the point? You know, what's the value that you're really offering? So, yeah, so we see more and more that if you don't come as overall survival data and only with PFS, uh, you might not get approved, particularly if the quality of life is not not uh, uh, better or even getting worse, but you certainly get a bad price in many of the European systems. Now, and the U.S. is still different. Uh, and, and of course, I think we need to differentiate between the payer approval, which the payers will still let it go. But then you still have to wonder whether the medical community is adopting yeah. it. Are you really going to be adopted in the guidelines? Are you going to have that rapid uptake if you don't have the best of evidence? And that's a trade-off that we really need to make a little bit better nowadays, I think, in the industry.
0: Yeah, I I, I think you made a, a very good point. I think you could probably, I think even, let's say, turn that a bit further, right? I mean, if I take maybe even within Europe, if we take the UK and Germany or France as kind of, let's say, two different, let's say, blocks, I mean, I could at least imagine the situation where UK NICE would accept PFS and maybe the extrapolation into overall survival with a favorable cost per quality versus at least Germany would not accept PFS at all. Um, Yeah. Would would you think that that would make sense? I mean, yes, of course, there are different payer types. I mean, we're also going to EU joint HTA in the future. Um, But I mean, there's still a lot of different, let's say, views, especially on that special endpoint.
1: Yeah. And don't forget, of course, in the UK, even if they deem it acceptable, they might still make selections of patients for which it's deemed more cost effective. And and of course, uh, the UK tends to Agree to modeling a little bit more than certainly than than markets such as France and Germany that you're talking about. Um, and and again, with the PFS, you may get approval in Germany, but your price is just going to be horrible. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and when you get OS data later, you don't expect a price increase. You, you get maybe a token price increase, but it's not the same as if you would have come with robust OS data.
0: Exactly. Which might also be one of the big difference between Europe and the U.S., right? In the U.S., the price could go up. In Europe, it's, it can only go down, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, if we stick a bit still with that progression-free survival, um, I mean, if if we go maybe a bit in the early stages of cancer, so adjuvant kind of treatment, I mean, where it might also be difficult to prove over survival in a, let's say, decent clinical trial, or also even in some metastatic areas, right, where we have already really long progression-free survival, five, six, seven, eight years, right? Would you see that maybe payers might also accept such a kind of situation where maybe more, I don't know, disease-free survival and or progression-free
1: survival would be acceptable? Yeah, I think it continues to be a very difficult topic, and I, I would mm-hmm. certainly advise any company to make sure you talk to the payers and check it for your situation. Also, for example, smaller populations like uh, mm-hmm. orphan drugs, like, uh, oh, can I do a single-arm trial? Uh, companies often assume you can, and then particularly Germany will say, no, not in this case. So, So, yes, it is hard in some cases. Uh, to show overall survival, particularly when the patient is not, is, is dying, is living longer, right? Which is kind of ironic. Uh, showing the best overall survival results in a patient that maybe is already on average living three to five years will require a very long trial. I, I think what's important to consider whether you can measure overall survival in a reasonable mm-hmm. way um, uh, consult with the payers, and in many cases, at least make sure that part of the package in that case would be long-term follow-up and the confirmation. And that's where real-world evidence. We'll get back to that later, but where real-world evidence can play a role as well. But companies tend to assume that it's okay, and you know what assume does, right? Uh, so it it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I think you know to, to assume a given state or given requirements could be dangerous. Just generally, I mean, you have touched base already on a couple of endpoints and, uh, yeah, let's say measures, I would payers uh, want to see. I mean, could you just summarize it again? What do really payers want to see, at least in the majority of cases, when we're speaking about oncology?
1: Yeah, I I think they want to see in the randomized control trial, head-to-head versus the current standard of care, a meaningful improvement in long-term outcomes. And oncology... That usually means OS, but we need to realize that that's indeed not always possible, uh, but don't assume that it's not possible. Uh, That's what they typically want to see.
0: Which is also an interesting one, right? I mean, I guess we have have both worked on a global level as well. I mean, when we're speaking about standard of care, it's getting already a bit tricky sometimes, right? When you take, for example, the UK, Germany, Italy, maybe then Japan and the U.S. into account, maybe Canada as well, then it's getting really very tricky to define a standard of care for a global trial. What are your recommendations around that?
1: Well, actually, I think there are actually a number of tricky areas that uh, companies are getting into and, and or that companies make mistakes with. Or let me put it this way, that payers have pointed to that are problematic areas for them. And this is one of them. But let me mention all four of them. Uh, and actually, this is something that we recently uh, talked about with payers in the U.S., the EU4 now, and, and the U.K. And the main mistakes that companies are making is that, one, the primary endpoint is not accepted by payers. Well, we talked quite a bit about that already. That's the typical OS versus BFS and in oncology, at least. It happens in other therapy areas as well. Um, so surrogate endpoints instead of long-term outcomes metrics, in short, that's what it really stands for. Then the second big one is that the trial comparator is not appropriate, and that's what you are alluding to now. So maybe we do a trial against a comparator which we feel is a little bit easier to win from. It's always a tough you know, choice What you, how you power your trial and make sure your trial uh, succeeds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so... And in that end, our know, payers will want to see a comparison versus the standard of care, but the standard of care at the time that you submit so uh in some cases, we find ourselves that the standard of care has changed um, and so they expect you to make some anticipation of that. they will hold it against you if you really make a wrong choice or in some cases, the standard of care may be different, uh, particularly if it's different between some European countries, for example, between France and Germany. That's, that's a tough decision. Now, we have this European alignment uh, you know, of, of, uh, of HTA. We'll have to see how that works out. And, and hopefully, countries will accept it when there's a recommendation coming out of that. I'm not at all convinced yet, frankly, that Germany or France will accept the standard of care from other countries that's not applicable to them, but we'll have to see. Maybe in those cases, they will accept a robust indirect comparison, but that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Anyway, so that's number two. The third one is the typical single-arm trial, you know? Uh, let's not forget, uh, a single-arm trial by most payers, they just don't feel that this is appropriate, unless if it's a very small patient population, Typical orphan drug, uh, but not maybe even every orphan drug. But typically, that's where they will accept that it may just be hard to do that. And then the fourth one is the length of the trial. The trial is too short; is not evidence of a sustained effect and long-term outcomes. Uh, so, and and that particularly, of course, goes in combination with the surrogate endpoint. A lot of times, where we usually have a shorter trial to show that. So, so these four are the gap areas that we see that. Payers are very clear about in the responses that they feel that companies are just making the wrong choices.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. And I, th- I think uh, maybe just to touch base on your third point, because I think we have discussed already, let's say, the first two now, mm-hmm. I think, I think single arm trial, I mean, off drug area. I mean, when, when I'm speaking about, let's say, some of the 18Ps we now already have, both in the US and in Europe approved. Um, In some of those areas, it's just not possible, as you said, to run an RCT or even, let's say, a comparative trial, right? Not even thinking about maybe an R of the CT, right? Um, How could we still, let's say, comply in a way and show, let's say, our best efforts from an industry perspective to show the evidence maybe the the payers want to see? Even though that you have said, let's say, in those environments and circumstances, maybe payers would also accept a single-arm study. Still, I mean, it's always a question, right? I mean how much are we then willing to pay, right? Is a million or two or five or 10 or maybe 20 million in the future a fine maybe to charge and get reimbursed and also for a trial where we maybe only have a single arm trial with maybe sample size of five or 10
1: patients? It goes back to looking at the holistic situation to me. I mean, if you're talking about the therapy area with a tremendous unmet need, there's no other treatment there. Uh, you're coming with a value proposition that's clearly strong and it's clear that it is very difficult to do this kind of trial Uh, then I would still verify it with the pay you can first do that through research but you may want to have a consultation with them to validate that that is true and so it goes as a combination of uh, high on the need having a good story why you can do it and showing something that's meaningful anyhow if it's a marginal improvement in an area where the unmet deed does not seem to be tremendously high, you can you can bet that you're going to be out. They, they basically feel, and this is the feeling from payers a lot of times, right? You like you, it, it's almost like, hey, if you don't have the courage to do the trial, why do you expect me to have the courage to believe it? Yeah, so it it has to be the this. whole picture that makes sense. Um and for for a payer also to take the risk, right? For a payer, a lot of times what I hear from payers as a as a big concern is that they're getting this huge dossier. In two or three months, they at the most, they have to go through it and they're so afraid that they're missing something that a couple of months after the approval or a year, they're finding they made a mistake. They look like fools, they paid a lot of money for it. Um and, and all that against the background where they feel that the company is a lot of times trying to not do what's needed to really show the value. Of course, we have tough trade-offs. That's very clear. We need to consider those. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, no fully, fully agree. I mean,
0: um, j- j- just while you were speaking, I mean, I-, I just had the quote in mind. What I think, I think, it was the CEO of Bluebird said, uh, "The European system is broken," which could go into a similar kind of direction, right? I mean, what, what do you think about such a kind of quote? You know, especially maybe in the context what we have just been discussing, right? But requirements and and I don't know, data, data needs, clinical trial and evidence which is then finally been been shown. you know, no need to go into the bluebird case, but it was just something I always had in mind, right?
1: I, I think the system is is broken to some extent, um, because and that's a problem when you're having a monopsony um, government deciding about price. Let's face it, we have a still an aging population in Europe. We have advances in healthcare with more expensive treatments, and yet the average government feels that costs should not be increasing. That's just not realistic. Um, Of course, US government might say, well, our system is broken because it's rising so rapidly. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, Um, but certainly uh, European systems have the opportunity because there are monopsony to to force the budgets down and not recognize the rapidly evolving healthcare needs let's face it we, we're living relatively unhealthy lives in our lifestyles we have an aging population and the technology is advancing how can that go without any any cost increases um Yeah, And and then we have these systems, like now we have this huge uh, clawback in the UK that we're talking about. Stefan, I want you to try this. If by any chance you find out, as we get into the end of the year, that you spend more money at the supermarket than you had thought you would spend, I'd encourage you to go back to them and say, sorry, sorry, but we spent too much money today. You got to give me 20% back. I wanna see how that conversation goes. Uh, it, as much as you're smiling and this is a ridiculous conversation, yeah. this yeah. is yeah. the reality in all of these countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, now I, fair, if, okay, the industry, one might say, it is maybe not a completely uh, a complete market mechanism because we have this kind of dinner for three phenomenon where the, the buyer, the seller, and the decision-maker, the buyer, the user, and the decision-maker are not the same person. Um, but yeah, and and we're always talking about monopoly, but there's a monopsony effect that we are ignoring here as well, and that's problematic in in, in Europe. And this is why U.S. citizens are indeed paying an unfair share uh, of the of the of the drug costs.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I think very very interesting views. I think especially now in <laughs> the kind of economic downturn and uh, the probably uh, yeah the coming years to come. But maybe just uh, switch back again to oncology. Um, I think you you also said, let's say it's a kind of fourth area uh for let's say issue or let's say where companies having special issues maybe when discussing with payers or submitting it's the trial length i mean w- what are uh let's say possibilities where either companies could maybe um let's say um submit further evidence in the future after a put po- maybe even a positive reimbursement decision or uh, maybe payers could request further evidence it, is maybe real world evidence a solution here, even though that it's not randomized controlled trial data
1: okay, so a couple of comments on that first of all, you know kind of trial extensions and follow up that are no longer blinded mm-hmm. are a little bit frowned upon, but it could be a good solution in some cases you know, kind of as as an, as an alternative, so to speak um, and obviously. I mean, it may be clear the, the the consequences, particularly in actual US markets, of not having proper evidence, as they would say, and having these four gaps are usually very big. And we may end up not launching in the market because they just don't deem to, to be sufficient innovation. And it goes very steep with respect to the impact on, on price. Now, one of the questions, indeed, and we have discussed around these four with players around that as well in terms of how much, because real-world evidence, I mean, real-world evidence providing great opportunities to really learn what the impact is on patients of, uh, of a drug, drug or other medical treatment. However, payers don't see it as a replacement of a randomized controlled trial. They're really concerned there's going to be bias. And they're very, very strong in that belief uh, that if you don't do the proper work, and you don't engage in a proper randomized control trial against the right comparator with the right endpoint, that real-world evidence will not be the answer for you. Now, in some cases that we just talked about, for example, the one where you have a high need, there's a compelling proposition, but it takes too long to get overall survival data, et cetera. In that case, a very well-designed follow-up program, a good registry, good real-world data, can be accepted, but I would make sure that that's discussed as part of the submission, so both the rationale why you can't do that in a reasonable way that' they're in a mass control trial and showing a strong intent with a good plan on how you 're going to get that real world evidence and I must say the the length of the trial seems to be the one where they're most willing to consider real world evidence um, as a way to address some of of the gap. But you have to realize that if you do a very short trial and and there's not a strong support, that there's a sustained effect that there's a truly, of course, Alzheimer's disease is a typical one for that. I mean, we're talking about oncology here, but it's very hard Mm -hmm. to show a sustained effect. And and for a long time, uh, disease modification uh, was considered as long as you have effect for maybe a year or something like that. Uh, So that continues to be a discussion um in In every therapy area, and so we need to see how it evolves through so what evidence has become more accepted but i 'm not sure that any time soon if any time during a lifetime they 'll accept it instead of a properly designed randomized profile, certainly so betting it on it today would be would be a big mistake in my opinion
0: yeah i I would agree with that I think um there are a lot of let 's say discussion around the bias and uh, a lot of other things, even though that I think uh, there might be also statistical let's say, methods available, right? To maybe control for bias and, and stuff like that. But I would also say a substitute for a randomized controlled trial, I think is probably something that I can also not think of. It would be maybe more a kind of add on, but firstly RCT and then potentially additional data to be supported by real world evidence. And in some, yeah. maybe some some very few exceptions, like I think we have just discussed. Uh, some Very rare disease areas where with really very low number of patients, high unmet need. Maybe you could turn it in the other way around, right? That you just say come with a single arm plus real-world evidence in a way, and then maybe come up with an with an RCT later on. I think that's maybe something to also think of. Um, I think yeah. that's uh that's very good. Um, we have spoken a lot about payer requests, and you also said um. You know, an advice for companies is do consultation or just generally speak with with payers, right? To learn, to listen, etc. We've also discussed a bit um, that sometimes it's not that easy to always follow all requirements by all payers. But that's maybe just one, let's say, um, one point why maybe companies do not comply with those re- requests. I mean, what 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 are let's say what is your opinion? What do you see why? pharmaceutical companies do not really, at least not fully comply with payer requests, even though but I think at least in ecology, most of the
1: stuff is basically known. You know, I, I, I firmly believe that when you're looking at colleagues in the pharmaceutical industry in the access area, they know very well what's needed, in, at least in the larger companies. They, they know that very well. I, I don't think that's the issue. I don't think it's, a, a, it's a, an issue with the amount of understanding uh, or even work that they may do in in many cases. Uh, A lot of it is really in how, as a company, we make our decisions. And and let's face it, it's a tough decision, right? Because um, payer requirements are much tougher than physician and general medical community requirements. So it it requires usually uh, a bit more risk. It may require a longer trial. Um, and it's not clear that in every case, the best evidence is the best commercial option. Let's be clear about that. The problem is that in many cases, companies don't even have the process in place to find out what the trade-off is. And that's where I'm, I'm really having some some issues. And I've seen that in person in many companies, I still see it with many clients, uh, where particularly as the incentive of R&D is just to get it on the market, Um, we are not always able to get the best decision. And then some cases, of course, and that's with smaller companies, the expectations might be wrong as well. And maybe that's where the bluebird fits in in terms of thinking what's realistic uh, in some of these markets. But, you know, I think companies should work much harder on this. And I think it's really time to do this now. Uh, Honestly, I think the IRA and the US uh, will be a step in requiring that more. Um, and that's something I need to add to before I go into this, because the US, of course, the requirements are not as strict. So, in some cases, it may make sense for a company to say, you know what, these German and French requirements, I'm not sure I can meet them. I think it's too risky for this asset. I'm just going to accept that I'm going to have some default there, uh, but I still will be quite successful in the US or reasonably successful. Um, that's a trade off. But make the trade off, don't just assume that. Um, So I think companies need to do a couple of things to be better at this. Um, One of them is they just need to change the involvement of the access team and need to bring that to a much higher level. I honestly think that companies should have a chief access office that's Mm -hmm. reporting at the level of the head of R&D. If you don't change that, you will never get the right kind of tough dialogue going within the organization. So it needs to operate on a high level. It needs to have a voice and it needs to have an impact on the decisions. And again, they're going to be trade-offs. Impact on decisions doesn't mean that you're going to do the most expensive, most risky trial. No, it means that you're making the assessment. So go in it with open eyes. That's essentially what it is. So that's number one, open your eyes, chief access officer. Two, um, many companies, the Access is not appropriately incorporated in the financial forecasting process. It happens so many times that you're looking at the access requirements to be successful, and then the forecast is based on historical analogs. And we don't think, hey, what did it take to get to those analogs? What concessions had to be made? No, we don't do that. So we're just assuming we can get to the analog, and then we are choosing the development program that's the most rapid one to market. And then after launch, we were surprised how we have to explain to the market that we didn't achieve that we got. So our forecasting process needs to better incorporate the impact of access and maybe any scenarios that access may have. And by the way, that's not only payers. You know, if you have a stronger evidence program, you will have more rapid uptake in the medical guidelines and that will have a very big impact on your forecast as well. So it, it is medical community, Um, access decision in terms of guidelines uh, and support of KOLs. It is provider organizations in terms of their formulary adoptions. Of course, it's payers, but it's also patients and physicians in terms of the impact of copay on, on adoption. So those are all very important to take into consideration. Most companies don't do that well today, in my opinion. Third, a lot of times in, in companies, we're looking at the U.S. forecast and then add another 60% or so as a markup to get the rest of the world. Well, that clearly doesn't work anymore. I, I think we need to, particularly as we are kind of looking at potential in China in the future, Brazil, other BRIC or other emerging markets, whether Japan is 20 to 25% of the world as well. So I think we need to look more consciously by region, on what the access requirements are, what the general commercialization requirements are, of course, also what the regulatory requirements are, and take those more holistically into consideration rather than focus on the FDA and doing a bit of a markup. European companies naturally do this better because they can't mm. <laughs> ignore the uh, EMA and other ones. US companies are a little bit behind with that, and particularly biotech companies, they're, you know, they're kind of where a lot of the international markets is kind of the afterthought. Um, and they may want to invest in the US first, but it's still good to have an eye on. I think keep yeah to see what early decisions you may need to make to allow for that, and maybe look partners for further parts. So these are three, I think, big areas where companies I think need to lead, work a lot harder at this. And some companies have been making progress, but sometimes they make two steps forward, make one or two steps back. Uh, it, it's it's a very slow process.
0: Ed. That was great conclusion and big recommendation to all companies and not only act in oncology, but I would say across the different disease areas. Thank yeah, you very absolutely. much for your time and your insights.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. See Bye. you soon. I Bye.
0: Think. What a great discussion with Ed on market access in oncology. I think he raised a lot of important points. I think starting maybe with the key requirements and maybe also the key kind of issues coming up from the industry. Starting with the end point, think about overall survival. If it's not doable, obviously, first of all, and even before, speak and consult um, payers across the world. Maybe not only one payer, at least maybe two, three payers. Maybe, for example, two from Europe, one from the U.S. Uh, to get a good kind of sense what is doable. Because ultimately, we're coming to that by, let's see, more the end of this podcast episode, thinking about the trade-offs. Not only think about the endpoint, I think it's also important to think about the comparator where it's getting a lot of, let's say, more tricky than comparison to maybe some of the other issues, especially maybe considering different areas in the world. Think about the RCT, is a is a single arm study really something payers would accept for? I think only rare exceptions, we have talked about 18Ps, and finally also the trial length. Maybe run a trial longer than four or eight maybe 12 weeks, I think most patients are thinking about at least six months. That trial needs to run always, obviously, depend a bit on the disease area, but when we consider maybe oncology. Very important, probably also then more the recommendations to the pharmaceutical companies, what Ed said at the end of the day, involve an access uh, team earlier, maybe even having a chief access officer. Think and really calculate your trade-offs Proactively, so open your eyes. I think Ed, as Ed said, I think I, I love that very much as well, and and for sure, I think access Ed, a lot of times not properly being taken into account is also what he said. So also put it, for example, into the forecast planning more properly, not just a, a not on top a kind of up uh, uh, take, uh, let's say, out of the U.S., but really calculated in in front of it. And I think what I have now also done just after he said it, I just very quickly. Went into the supermarket, and especially now in December 2022, with the inflation in Germany around 10%, I was just going back, um, and and was just uh, asking whether I get maybe 20% back, because I think last week I only spent 20% or 10% less, and uh, I think people were just starting to laugh at me, and I was obviously telling the story what Ed told me around the pharmaceutical industry and the environment there. But for sure, I think um, this is maybe a funny uh, uh, idea to think of. But at the end of the day, it is maybe as well the kind of reality for companies. But also, I think it's not easier for the payers as well, as we said, and had it ready in the introduction. That was an episode of MAP, the Market Access Podcast podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German speaking markets. Map is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.